You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening your practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is that I won't be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions, Uh, but this is not an intro class. Um, We've been talking about the Manual of Insight, uh, the Mahasi's, uh, Sayadaw uh, manual for uh, Vipassana meditation. It's the new translation by the Vipassana Meta Foundation, so it's it's um, just out. This was a text that Mahasi wrote on how to do Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a is a term that refers to momentary concentration insight meditation. Um, in the traditional way of doing Vipassana, first you would cultivate concentration, and then once you reached access concentration or jhana, you would then go into Vipassana or insight practice. So this would be called the way of tranquility, and that's a very traditional way of teaching. This practice really evolved in response to the British um, uh, taking over what do we call it? The imperial trend of the British, the the occupation and colonization of uh, Myanmar. Um, the British decided that the appropriate response to the monastic uh, Buddhist tradition was to suppress it, and so they began uh, uh, to suppress the the uh, uh, monastic practices and the hierarchy of Buddhism at the time decided that the only way that they would be able to prevent that was if the whole population was engaged in practice. Then there would be no way for them to suppress the whole population. And so they also realized that <clears throat> teaching a uh, concentration-based practice would probably not be as useful for the lay people as an insight-first uh, practice. So uh, they developed this tradition of Karnaka Samadhi, which was incredibly controversial when they began to uh, promulgate it. We don't know that. We don't know the controversy of it because it's so widely distributed in the West, this Mahasi method, which is really probably known mostly as the noting practice. So in noting practice, you know where your attention is, you soak in and have the experience of sensing. And then um, in momentary concentration practice, the only time that the mind needs to be pure is in the moment of noting. This is very different than needing to sustain broadly uh, concentration in either access concentration or jhana. 
So you let your mind be drawn to whatever is interesting and then you note it. You know that that's where your attention is and you soak into the sensing experience of it. And in that moment of noting the mind needs to be pure, but that when you're out of that moment, if it gets caught up in the hindrances, that's fine. And when your attention is drawn to something else, you note it, you know what it is, and you soak into the sensing experience. And the mind is pure in that moment of noting. And then when you build a momentum of noting, that purity of mind carries over to the gaps between noting and you develop what would be an equivalent level of concentration if you had endeavored to first concentrate the mind. That's the, the trick of, of uh, Karnaka Samadhi or momentary concentration. <clears throat> so we've talked about purification of conduct, we've talked about purification of mind, and now we're talking about absolute versus conventional realities. And um, <clears throat> let's see. Tonight, the, concept, the, the topic that I wanted to talk about was called hearsay and such, which is a, frame, a refrain that comes up in the canon. Hearsay and such refers to the discourse that we often have in meditation communities about meditation. And uh, maybe you're familiar with this. It's never been something that really appealed to me particularly, and I don't engage in it. Um, very much, but I, I do have a lot of students who come to me with these questions about uh, practice and questions about meditation states that can be achieved and an endless kind of debate around what experience might be, <clears throat> which is different than actually having the direct experience of it through practice. So, uh, we pay attention to this description of ultimate versus uh, conventional realities. And I'm, I'm often struck with the difficulty of language because in our culture, ultimate is, is this, you know, uh, it almost sounds like a condom to me, you know, when, when we talk about it. <laughs> it's like an advertising term, the ultimate, the best. Maybe it's the, the, the uh, social media problem of everything is the most significant thing that has ever happened in the history of the human race. Click here. Um, <laughs> um, and actually, uh, the term ultimate reality is actually so ordinary when you actually begin to address what it is. <clears throat> and then conventional reality is this, this sort of agreement that we have. Uh, we, we tend to uh, really engage in other people and discuss things with other people uh, and we may be very detailed in the descriptions and, and the, the, the persuasions that we're, we're going for but actually what we want is consensus. What we want to do is feel seen by the other person and the content often is just a vehicle for that sense of endorsement or reassurance that our um, perception is a good one to have and that it has social value. Often we're debating these things in, a, in an attempt to elevate or maintain our social position within the group. Um, things learned through hearsay and such may be true or false, so such truths are not regarded as higher reality or ultimate reality. 
On the other hand, what can be empirically experienced really exists and is regarded as higher reality or ultimate reality. The term and such is a phrase in the phrase hearsay and such refers to realities that are accepted on the basis of tradition, scripture, logic, method, reason, or personal opinion. Realities that are accepted on the basis of these rather than through personal experience cannot be regarded as ultimate reality. <clears throat> Ouch, hot. So in some sense what we're talking about here is being able to bring your attention to the sensing experience itself and have a direct awareness of the sensing experience itself and then to watch what you make the sensing experience into. The thing that you make the sensing experience into is the conventional reality and the sensing experience itself is the ultimate reality. A non-reducible experience. Whereas the conventional reality is often reducible to the sensing experience itself. You're looking around the room, and when you look around the room, does it appear to you to be solid and in focus? And do people seem to be people, and chairs seem to be chairs, and the floor seems to be the floor? That would be conventional reality, not ultimate reality. What is the sensing experience of seeing actually like? And here is the problem with the, the teasing out of these two, because the habit energy of forming things into fixed objects is so strong that you don't have a way of teasing it out. You don't have a way of simply dropping into the sensing experience without the fixating. Um, another issue with this, of course, is that conscious experience, this thing that we're aware of, that we, we often experience as if it's existing in the present moment and that we're we are experiencing it just as it happens, is actually a half a second behind. And the mind simply smooths over the gap of the half a second. So that we're actually sort of looking at a playback of what has happened rather than being in the moment that it's happening because it takes that long to process in the body-mind and create that experience before it's ready to play. Do you remember, or maybe some of you still do play sports, uh, of trying to learn to hit a ball, and that in the beginning it's very difficult to do, because you're in the conscious mind trying to control the body to get it to perform, and actually the ball has already gone by by the time you get, you're able to move. It's not until you can get to a place where you're actually playing from the unconscious that you're able to hit the ball because the unconscious is actually interacting pretty much with things as they happen and later reporting it to the conscious aspect of experience. So most of the time the body-mind has figured out what the pattern of the sensing experience is, fixated it and created the experience of it before it enters into consciousness so you're just seeing it already fixated as it enters into consciousness. Uh huh. So, for example, um, this, the speed of sound traveling is slower than the speed of light. Now I know we're talking really minuscule here, but is that, is that another example of perhaps our minds smoothing things over, seeing 
lips move in what I perceive as conjunction right. with what I'm hearing. Well, it, all of that, the, all of those speeds are so fast yeah. that all of that processing has already happened before it enters into consciousness. So another example might be you're hearing um, the sound of my voice, but you're probably hearing it in words that have associated meaning that are in a sentence structure that you can make sense out of it. Right. Um, but you're not hearing the sound first and then noticing all of that attach. As it enters consciousness, it's already attached, right? One of the ways that you can begin to examine this through direct experience, particularly in sound, is to listen for sounds that you don't know what they are. And then if it lasts longer than a half a second, you can watch the mind attempting to identify what the sound is. And you'll notice that the mind spins. And this, is it this, is it this, is it this, is it this, it's this, and then it fixates and it becomes that sound unless there's more evidence that that's not the sound and then it splits and then it's is it this, is it this, is it this, is it the kind of spinning? Um, um, I found that to be fun and fascinating, and I was working in the movie business at the time, and we had a, a library of sound effects that was like, I don't know, 150,000 sounds on you know, 50 CDs or something like that. And so we would just stick one in and meditate and listen to see if we could identify what the sound was. And so you could get into this place of really being able to watch the mind spin, trying to figure out what it was with some of these uh, obscure sounds. But there's also the, the aspect of visual experience. Can you be in a room that's completely unfixated? What is the sensing experience of seeing that's not fixated like and are you free to come and go from fixating into not fixating? That would be a high degree of freedom. But most of us have spent so long in the habit of fixating everything, we really don't have much choice in terms of whether the mind fixates something or not. And so the, the experience of direct practice would be to bring your attention to these things and try and pull them apart so you can separate the moment of fixation uh, and then just be in a place of uh, Shinzen, my teacher likes to call it flow, where nothing is fixated, it's just purely flow. One of the things that he used to say on retreat was, see if you can hear the sound of my voice as sound, no words, nothing fixed. And then um, we would all be dutifully sitting there trying to hear it just as sound, and then on the fourth or fifth day of the retreat, they would split apart and you could hear <coughs> the sound of his voice and not make it into words. <coughs> and then he would call on you and you would say, uh, for instance, being a smartass, I would say, <coughs> I'm sorry, Shinzen, I didn't fixate any of your words, so I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> and he would go, good student. <laughs> Um, so just letting everything roll without fixating anything then you're just in this experience of sensing and as you may recall um, just seeing uh, no one seeing nothing seen just hearing uh, no one hearing nothing heard this process of just 
being in the ultimate reality. If you have flexibility in that, then you can test what you've created out of the ultimate reality. You can touch into just the sensation of sensing and then watch the process of fixating it into something to uh, see whether or not there's a, a distortion that's built into that. <clears throat> but, you know, the question is, have you ever misinterpreted something? <clears throat> and if you have, are you able to touch into the ultimate experience of the pure sensing and refixate it to see, to investigate where the distortion may have happened? What is handed down through tradition by our teachers and forefathers as well as what we receive through hearsay are sometimes true and sometimes not. So they should not be considered ultimate realities. Also the validity of what is considered to be in accord with scripture depends on the quality of the scripture. Even when a scripture is reliable, it is still necessary to correctly interpret it in order to exact genuine truth from it. So such truths are not yet considered ultimate realities. Ideas arrived at through logic are not always true and therefore they should not be considered to be ultimate realities. <clears throat> Ideas that ha are arrived at methodically may be true or not depending on the rationality of the method and so they should not be considered ultimate realities. Ideas that are accepted based on reason or personal opinion are also not always true and thus they cannot be considered ultimate realities. For this reason... <clears throat> In the Kalama Sutta and elsewhere in Buddha, uh, and elsewhere the Buddha discouraged us from holding views based on hearsay, tradition, and so forth. A truth accepted by any of these means is not reliable. Instead, he instructed us to experience the truth empirically for ourselves through practice. It is only through empirical knowledge that we can experience mental and physical phenomena. So what we're actually talking about here is the experience of mental and physical phenomena or the knowing and the sensing. Is that clear? So, you know, in Buddhism we have the five senses, we have the capacity of touching, of seeing, of hearing, of tasting, of smelling. That, that same cluster of sensing capacities that are considered in Western uh, philosophy. And then we have also the addition of thinking or the thing that we make it into, the mental aspect of interpreting the sensing experience. <clears throat> a person who is born blind cannot by any means know the colors red, white, yellow, or blue, no matter how others describe those colors. He or she is simply not able to compre comprehend the experience of seeing. Similarly, someone with a uh, deficient sense of smell cannot th know the difference between fragrant and putrid odors regardless of how others may explain them. One cannot truly know the flavor of food that one has never tasted no matter how it is described and one cannot understand the pain of headache, toothache or stomachache if one has never had them. Likewise, one cannot know insight knowledge, jhana or the path and fruition if one has not yet attained them regardless of how they may be explained in accordance with the scripture. So there is endless churning of discussion around states and, and uh, often striving for states and there's often an, a, a social status associated to people who have achieved certain uh, states. 
And uh, all of this is conventional reality and cannot not really be relied on. Uh, what I think is important in terms of uh, finding a teacher is that they describe the experience of practice and they describe the fruits of practice in a way that you can understand what they're talking about without a lot of transliteration, without a lot of... Uh, um, the, the direct experience of what they're saying, something you can know... Uh, makes sense and that you don't have to adjust it so that it uh, complies with your way of thinking. But a description that a teacher might give of something is not the same thing as having the experience of it. And so really what you should be organizing your practice around is a way in order to have the direct experience yourself of these things. Um, in, in some sense a teacher may be able to describe for you a technique or a practice that is likely to produce a direct experience but you then need to have the direct experience um, and I think also that often what happens um, particularly earlier in practice is that there's a kind of craving uh, or a grasping or a striving to achieve certain states and and then a turning to the teacher to endorse whether or not you've reached those states. And that that also is unreliable because you are asking somebody through hearsay, for instance, to validate your direct experience when they haven't had the experience to know. And that your description of the experience is not going to be adequate for them to have a direct knowledge of whether you've achieved it or not. So it isn't a reliable method. You really need to be able to do it yourself and have the experience that's described uh, in these things. Is that that making sense? Real empirical knowledge belongs only to those insight meditators, those who achieve jhana and the noble ones. Therefore, whatever is known through hearsay and such is merely conceptual and not real ultimate ultimately existing mental or physical phenomena. Since we conceive as visible objects, they can be empirically known. And since it is obvious that the continuum of life possesses eye sensitivity and eye consciousness, they too can be empirically known. Uh, The same is true for mental and physical phenomena of sound, the ear sensitivity and ear consciousness, and similarly, for the senses of smell, taste, touch, and thought. We can clearly experience these mental and physical phenomena by means of insight knowledge, path knowledge, fruition knowledge, and reviewing knowledge. So let me just touch on some of these terms in case. Eye sensitivity or ear sensitivity or taste sensitivity, maybe tongue sensitivity, depending on how it's described, uh, describes the capacity to sense. If you have eye sensitivity, then you can see light. If, you, if you're blind, then you don't have eye sensitivity and you can't know empirically. Eye sensitivity is the capacity to know, the capacity to sense, and then when that capacity to sense meets an object that can be sensed, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises. So eye consciousness arises, which awareness knows. And then when the object that can be sensed is no longer in contact with 
the capacity to sense, then the consciousness of that sensing experience ends, which awareness knows. That's the process. Um, We can experience these mental and physical phenomena by means of insight knowledge, path knowledge, fruition knowledge, and reviewing knowledge. So um, what, what's being described there is the experience of enlightenment. So insight practices where you're, you're paying attention to these sensing experiences through the technique that you're doing. Um, path knowledge is uh, the experience when you come out of the experience of cessation that you know whether you've taken a path or not. Fruition knowledge means that you know that you've had the experience of cessation. Cessation is the cessation of awareness. So the thing that knows cessates and there's, there's nothing. And then as you come out of that experience and the sensing process turns back on, you have fruition knowledge, which means that you know that you've had the experience of cessation. And then you have path knowledge, meaning that you know whether you've taken an additional path or not. It's possible, certainly, to have fruition knowledge and not take a path. That's why they're separate. And then reviewing knowledge is the process of integrating these experiences of cessation. So that it's sort of you're practicing insight. Uh, you have the experience of cessation. You know whether you've taken a path or not. You know that you've had the experience of cessation. And then reviewing knowledge is where you integrate the the uh, insight that comes from that. Really, the insight comes from this process of the of awareness returning, which is a kind of a completely unfixated experience of being, and then the watching of the things refixate, re-solidify. And in seeing through the presentation of the fixated world by the ultimate reality of nothing being fixated, you are able to see the distortions that come out of that. Um, So I like to describe it as being taken over by the Borg, if we can use a science fiction metaphor. That you're this being with no fixation existing in this intensity of bliss and everything is magical and then you begin to fixate the world and it's if these implants are slammed into you rigidly forming you into this perception of who you are and how the world is but because you've come from this place where nothing was fixated and this place of such profound bliss that when you're when you're confined into these uh, robotic pressure cookers of ideas about how you and the world are, you know that they're not real, that they're insubstantial, and that produces a freedom from being confined by them that you may have had before. Um, and th- but it also creates this perception, this profound difference between the conventional and ultimate realities, because the, the sense of ultimate reality is just this really this field of energy. Is that making sense? So, 
Because we know that these phenomena truly exist through a personal experience, they are real, and because they are not accepted through hearsay or on the basis of scripture, they cannot be incorrect realities. Therefore, they are said to be genuine. They are said to genuinely exist and be empirically experienced. So then, the question is: How do you practice in such a way as that you begin to have the kind of insight that's described as leading to liberation? The Mahasi manual is really a manual that's solely focused on practicing in such a way that it produces classical enlightenment. In the earlier chapters, Mahasi is talking about how householders can have, through practices that they can do while remaining householders, stream entry and uh, additional uh, classically enlightening experiences. Then the question is, how do you organize your practice in such a way that these things are likely to come from it? Um, so, uh, here we're talking about practicing in such a way as that we can begin to see the nature of ultimate reality, how we can get out of the, the mind of constantly fixating everything and making it solid. Um, and I like to, to, to suggest that you do that either through sound and listening for things that are um, that you don't know what they are for longer than half a second. And uh, here, the windows being the way that they are, it's possible that you might be able to hear a sound uh, that you don't know what it is for long enough to be able to watch the mind in that process so that you could hear the sound itself without it being made into something. But another way to do that would be through um, sight space or seeing. Um, um, I call it twilight meditation, but one of my favorite ways to practice is at dusk uh, in a room that's lit only by natural light, sit with the eyes open and watch what happens to sight space as the light begins to dim. At a certain point, you'll notice that all of the color drains out of the image and it becomes predominantly a black and white image. And this is because we have rods and cones in the eyes. The cones are the thing that add color to the image that we see, and they require a lot more light than the rods do in order to create an image. So that at a certain point, the natural light will dim to the point where there isn't enough light for them to be activated, and they'll drop out of the image and so all of the color will drain out of the image. Are you familiar with how the night looks often black and white because there isn't color there, there isn't enough light to create color? The rods, and, uh, the, the rods see lines and they see gradation of gray. That's the, how they, they're activated. Um, and as long as there's enough light that the lines, the edges of things can be made out, the world uh, appears stable and solid. But as soon as the light gets dim enough that you can't make out the edges of things, the whole visual field begins to roll and fixate and roll and fixate. And the body-mind will be able to create out of that low-light situation amazing arrays of things out of that small amount of light and you'll begin to, if you can allow it, this process of the rolling flow of unfixated sensing and then the mind making it into something and then rolling and it being made into something. 
So for tonight, what I thought we would do is sit in the dark because the low light situation makes it harder for the mind to fixate things. And you may notice with an eyes open meditation that um, this process of the, the visual field of turning into flow is more likely. You'll notice in doing this practice that there's blinking and that often the, the, the blinking will cause the visual field to refixate and also uh, that there's uh, sometimes a fear component that arises in, in, the, in response to this technique. If the, the body-mind really begins to allow the visual field to break up into just this flowing visual experience, that it's frightening and then the eyes attempt to focus and that the moving back and forth of the, the lens in the eye, which is a particular sensation, will refixate everything. The fear arises because the insight into things being, uh, the, the insight into the difference between ultimate and conventional reality uh, points in the direction that nothing actually is reliable and that you're, you're basically making it all up. This really undermines that belief that, that you perceive things the way that they are. So uh, don't be alarmed if you notice that there's a, a, just a spasm of fear and then the world is solid again. That's a very typical response to doing this technique. So the, the technique we're going to do is simply looking out into maybe six or eight feet in front of you, fixing the eyes so that you don't allow them to move. One of the ways that the mind is able to create these solid images is that the eye just goes and takes these snapshots of focus all over the place. It's a kind of browning motion, and then it assembles this picture that you see. And if you don't allow the eyes to move, they can't refresh, and they can't continue to maintain the image. And then you may notice the edges begin to dance. It's a kind of um, pixelated or pointillated image that happens. And the more you're able to relax into it and simply allow it, the greater the flow will get until at a certain point the whole visual field is just a swirl of colored dots or grayscale dots. Uh, And then see if you can allow that to be without attempting to fix it again. Um, I just think we should uh, do the discussion part in a German accent. (laughs) (laughs) So, what was that like? Close? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very close. 
Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> I would. I found that it would get very flowy, and then my my eyes would focus and jam it back into solid again, over and over again. It got a little annoying. <laughs> There were a couple of times when the whole thing started to shake and then it would snap back into solid. Your jacket was off in the sitting? Yeah. Because I could notice a tiny bit of red on your sleeves and everything else was gray. How about? Did you have much color in the, in the frame? The light was so low. Everyone's in a sort of concentration trance. <laughs> uh huh. It, it, it was more readily available in the very beginning. Um, then at one point I thought. Things were happening, it turns out I just crossed my eyes. It's nothing tricky about this. Just me looking at my nose. So nothing was fixed? Yeah. Yeah. Good. But it wasn't the experience that, that you've um, described in the past of there, there being like a movement. If, if, if there was, I was just disconnected from it. Mm. Um, okay. So people, I'm guessing that, that, that people can have different experiences of the same phenomena. Mm-hmm. Well, it would, it would be how you relate to it right? and what you, associations you make to it so that the way you describe it would be that. Right. Thank you. So all of these little legs would, were forming a white radiator. 
periodically. It would be a solid white radiator sitting there on the floor. That was kind of fun. All right. So thank you for coming. This is Deepening Your Practice. So I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. Uh, The main way to do that, of course, is to go on retreat. Uh, There's some retreats coming up. You'll notice there's a flyer there for the Memorial Day retreat with Noah and Vinny. That's going to be four days in Joshua Tree. I'm also doing a Memorial Day retreat in New York uh, State. It's a nine-day retreat. So uh, They're going to be doing a, a Four Foundations retreat and I do a Metta Vipassana retreat. So in a Metta Vipassana retreat, the first uh, four days of the retreat are all Metta. You just do Metta. And then the, 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 the last six days of the retreat are all Vipassana. So what I notice in doing that, that way of practicing is you become very calm, very peaceful. The mind becomes very kind. So when you move into the Vipassana practice, if you've ever had a kind of jagged experience of Vipassana, particularly in relating to yourself, that doesn't tend to happen on a Metta Vipassana retreat. You come into a place of great kindness for yourself and then you can investigate in, in, in a Vipassana the nature of your conditioning without it resulting in so much judgment that often comes. So I highly re- recommend that. The, the, the Maya retreat is at the Watershed Center, which is a beautiful farm in upstate New York near the Hudson. So it's really uh, a wonderful place to retreat. Um, I will be doing a summer retreat. I'm not sure where or when at the moment. I have been doing them at Zaka Lake, but uh, Zaka Lake burned down in a wildfire. So we're, we're trying to find another place. Um, uh, I think that uh, ATS is doing an East Coast retreat in August um, and I think that's going to be Joanna Vinny and Chris Karate and, um, <clears throat> and then I'll be doing the winter retreat again in, in December the um, main thing about this though is that you figure out we're not the only place that does retreats, so you might be able to find retreats at other centers. There's Spirit Rock, there's IMS, and, and many, many, many others. The idea then is to find a retreat that you want to go to, to sign up for it, to pay for it, to tell everyone you know that you're going on the retreat so that you'll be socially humiliated if you chicken out, so that you actually get yourself to go. At least one residential retreat, at least one week-long residential retreat a year is good for deepening the practice. You'll notice that there's also some flyers up there for some other events that are coming up. Take a look at those. I am also an ardent supporter of meditation centers because the Vipassana practice can often get difficult and it's useful to have people that will support you in your practice I don't know if you've ever tried to have a discussion with somebody who doesn't meditate about the difficulties of your meditation practice, but it usually goes something like, why are you doing that? (laughs) (laughs) You could go to the Bahamas for that money. Um, So, uh, nice to have people who support you. What better place to meet somebody who will support you in your practice than at a meditation session? In order to have a meditation center to come to, we need to support the meditation center. Uh, the practice of dana, or the practice of generosity, is really a practice that, w- that we undertake to open our own hearts. 
Uh, we've kind of crunched the numbers. $15 seems like a good amount based on the number of people that come to be able to keep the doors open and the lights on. But you really need to be practicing from a level that has meaningful, that's meaningful to you. So if $15 doesn't mean that much to you, practice at a level that has meaning. If $15 is a good amount, practice at that level. If $15 is too much, practice at a level that you can. Uh, but also understand that if you're not resourced, we as a community are very happy to provide this place for you to come and practice. We take cash and cards. If you'd also be so kind as to push the chairs back and put the cushions away, that's also appreciated, and we'll see you next time. I'm leaving for a month to go to Myanmar to practice, and so Blake Abramovitz will be coming and teaching the class for the whole month of February. Thanks.